once again, friends, and welcome to another edition of the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Alex. I'm Matt. I'm Crystal. I'm Vera. And I'm Sylvia. And I actually don't have little Jack. He is sleeping, but he may be joining us depending on when he wakes up. Yeah. He'll make a guest appearance whenever he wants to. Well, friends, before we jump in to Chapter 9, The Midnight Duel, uh, a couple words of reminder. First of all, you can follow us on Twitter at HPBC Podcast and stay up to date with the latest news and updates from the Harry Potter Book Club. You can always also uh, get in touch with us. Send in your comments and questions about uh, the Harry Potter books, the whole canon, to hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. And just to prove that, Crystal is going to read uh, a most recent letter from a listener. Okay, so I have a letter here from Emerson with a couple of uh, comments. So it says, Hello, Harry Potter Book Club. Thanks for letting us in on your delightful conversations. I enjoy the insights and laughter every episode. In Episode 7, you discussed Neville's disaster in potions and how dangerous Hogwarts is all around. When I see the amount of danger the children in this fantasy world face, whether it's a step that catches your foot, a third-floor corridor where one could die a very painful death, a potions class with little to no safety equipment or, overs or oversight, a forbidden forest, quidditch with brooms and bludgers, or any other number of dangerous possibilities. I sometimes wonder if Rowling is making some sort of statement about our society. Do you think she intends to suggest that children need to face more adversity in life than children in our world today? On a different matter, if I remember correctly, later in the series, Harry and Hermione go into hiding from the wizarding world, and no one is able to find them. I think there are other situations in the series where someone is missing or hiding. Why doesn't anyone send an owl and then follow it in order to find them? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I look forward to future episodes. Keep them coming. Emerson. Well, uh, thanks, Emerson, first and foremost. I think we're going to address the second part of this question. Because in the chapter we're discussing tonight, uh, chapter 9, I think we'll be able to address that first part first. So just regarding the owl finding Harry, Ron, and Hermione, what do you all think? Well, there certainly are a lot of different times when people don't want to be found. Right, Sirius Black is hiding mm -hmm. for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Voldemort, um, is Voldemort is hiding <laughs> for a very long time. Uh, a lot of the conflict in the later books, when Voldemort's sort of rising, involves various people going missing, and that's like one of the chief complaints of the of the like the dark times, right? People went missing and people didn't know. So he's totally right that like there's there's something weird about a wisdom world that can do all sorts of amazing things, but at the same time, like a fairly normal task. People can't find people when they need them. Right. Well, it is true uh, that the owls, you know, they send them and that they somehow magically are able to find uh, whoever they're sent to find. You know, they're able to, to get that letter to them. And so one of the obvious uh, examples that sticks out to me is uh, you already mentioned it, Alex. It's Sirius Black. I mean, when you have all of Book 3, or at least most of Book 3, they're looking for Sirius Black. Um, why not just send an owl and follow that owl and get Sirius Black, catch him right, right. there? And we do get the warning. You know, people say, you know, send a less recognizable owl to Sirius because the ministry could track Hedwig. She's very unique looking. Mm -hmm. But you know, you still have to wonder, like, can't the ministry just send an owl to Sirius? Like, how how do you go off-grid in this magical society where an owl can find you no matter where you are? 
or if you are casting protective spells, mm-hmm. which uh, Hermione does with great expertise right. uh, in Book Seven, how are uh, how are owls not also you know affected by that? Because Sirius is, is clearly trying to stay in hiding, even when he's communicating with Harry. But his expectation is that an owl is going to be able to get to him. So it's it's confusing. It cuts both ways, I think. My One of my hypothetical theories relating at least to Sirius and Voldemort is that it has something possibly to do with their humanity, that owls can track people, perhaps, but because Voldemort has lost so much of his humanity... And because Sirius is able to transform so much of the time into a dog, that gives him extra cover. Hmm. Like, the birds get confused. They're like, well, like, as though they had some kind of radar, the blip on the screen disappears, you know? Because you've ceased being a human. Well, Uh, even following... Oh, sorry. Sorry, no, go ahead. Even following that same train of thought, I, I think you're onto something there, but with Sirius, even if they did send an owl to find him... Only a few people, a handful of people, know that he can transform into a dog. So they would find a dog and maybe not think much about it. So I think that that's part of it. But I, I like what you said. I like that hypothetical theory there because Voldemort has lost so much of his humanity and he's very snake-like is how he's portrayed. That's a, that's a good thought. Yeah. I also think, though, in a magical universe where magic can do so much, you inevitably do run up into questions like this. Mm-hmm. Where it's sort of like, well, magic can do X, Y, and Z. Why can't it do this one other thing as well? Mm-hmm. And if it can do this, well, then why doesn't it seem like everything is consistently affected in the same way? Uh, so I think that's one of the dangers uh, of an author creating such an involved magical mm-hmm. universe is that consistency issues inevitably arise. And I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere deep in the minds of Pottermore there were a sentence or two about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have yet to read it. Um, and, and who knows, maybe, maybe there's not. And listener, if you found that on Pottermore, please send us an email at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. Wonderful lead in. So. <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, I just think there is no real good answer to that question um there's a lot of times there's a whole lot of different uh rabbit holes you know we could go down uh there's a whole lot of different plot holes that i think a lot of fans have pointed out over the years that one of them the the biggest for me being the time turner and exactly in book three i mean if you've got a, a device that can turn back time and undo your mistakes so to speak then you know, you've got something really special there. So again, there's there's a lot of different uh, pieces of magic and a lot of different objects that mm-hmm. leave open the possibilities of all these plot yeah. holes. And, and Rowling has admitted yes. that uh, introducing the time element was way uh, more tricky mm-hmm. than she expected. Uh, and uh, anybody who's read Cursed Child... Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, where uh, moving back and forth through time and you know, sort of multiple timelines working together at once, um, the issues with consistency and sort of the, the physics of time and all of that uh, yeah. come to the fore. Yeah. 
Well, shall we move to chapter nine and perhaps touch on uh, Emerson's other question as well as we get there? Yeah. All right. So chapter nine, uh, the midnight duel. Um, I guess I would uh, like to start by tossing out uh, a question that may generate some conversation. Uh, This is, uh, in in my estimation, one of the more sort of Malfoy-centric chapters uh, that we've come across. We've seen Malfoy. We've sort of been turned off by him uh, in a couple of scenes, but a lot of the action deals with him here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As we look at what this chapter uh, narrates, but also what we've seen previously, and also, I guess, what we know comes later in the canon, my question to you all would simply be, what makes Draco Malfoy so awful? Uh, It's easy to point out that everybody hates Draco, uh, but as I was reading this chapter... I was trying to get into his character a little bit more mm-hmm. and sort of navigate the question, what, what is it about him that is so repugnant? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, we see even on the first page of this chapter that he's again compared to Dudley. Uh, so that maybe that's a good jumping off point there. I mean, how... I mean, because we can kind of see that Dudley is also not painted in such a good light. Um, I mean, he says that he he thought, or Harry thought that he would not find a boy that he hated more than Dudley, but that was before he met Draco Malfoy. And so Dudley is again brought up, I I think, in comparison, uh, or let's flip that back. Draco's brought up in comparison to Mm -hmm. Dudley, who we first met, and... Uh, I, one of the reasons I think is that they're both very privileged in their family. They, I mean, essentially, we know Draco is an only child, and Dudley was pretty much raised as an only child. Harry was there, but Harry might as well not have been there. He was more of a pet mm-hmm. than anything mm-hmm. else. And so we get this. Yes, yeah. we get this only child mentality where this child is also raised in a way that they get everything that they want. Um, And I think maybe that's a good starting point. For me, I agree with you at least for the first two books, but for for me the hatred only grows with Malfoy as we're introduced to Sirius, who grew up in a family of dark wizards and then turned away from that. And I think while we hate Malfoy, we also kind of identify with him a little bit because it's like, it's so hard to not want to just fit in with what everybody is telling you is accepted. So for me, to meet Sirius, who against all of his family's wishes, chooses to go what I'll call the good path. He you know, turns away from Voldemort and you know, his brother was killed on Voldemort's orders. All of these things. So for me, for Draco, it's I want more from him. I want him to, to be a good character. And I think eventually we do at least sort of come to terms with who Malfoy is and he turns away. But seeing that Sirius has kind of led the same life and we have someone to compare him to, we want more from Malfoy, and yet he still thirsts mm-hmm. to prove himself mm-hmm. in this dark world that we find later he doesn't really belong in. He's only a, a, a pawn in that world. But even so, I think Draco 
he 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 does follow along with his family's footsteps, but he goes above and beyond, I think, to do just dirty and nasty things mm-hmm. to yeah. Harry. And this is especially brought out, I think, in this chapter mm-hmm. that he definitely takes a low road yeah. Uh, yeah. with with Harry. Yeah, I think. I mean, Malfoy definitely makes a transition. I'm going to say, uh, like, pre-Voldemort's return, pre-return Malfoy is <laughs> um, is a very different character than we get later because mm-hmm. that power hasn't shifted. But he is still kind of running off the fumes of my family was in with the most powerful wizard of the age. And even though he's gone, we still have that residual power and the money and the um, the privilege and the uh, pedigree that gives you so much power in the wizarding world, and so he's got, you know, this it's it's insufferable smugness mm-hmm. about him at all times that really makes you hate him, um, because not only is he using his privilege against other people and putting them down, but he just he always has. This like smirk, mm-hmm. like he just you just want to smack him every mm-hmm. time he talks. It's, he's a very difficult character to get along with in the beginning. He's just very childish, but he's got an intelligence that Dudley doesn't have, and that's what makes him more dangerous. Because mm-hmm. Dudley's just kind of a dumb bully, but Malfoy's like a mob boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I think one of the things that makes Malfoy so detestable isn't just that he is arrogant, but he's arrogant about things that he did nothing Mm -hmm. to earn. So it's one thing to be insufferably arrogant about, you know, what you have done. Right. And it's another to be insufferably arrogant about what you have inherited. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when you combine that with the fact like like Crystal was saying, that there's no backbone. Like, there's no conviction. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the things that it looks like he's committed to, he's not really when push comes to shove. Because his, his thirst for power actually makes him a coward. Um, because the moment he feels like uh, conviction in any particular direction will cost him, he turns tail and runs. And it's some of the most humorous, uh, you know, uh, episodes in, in the entire series of books when Malfoy <laughs> hightails it out of there in fear. But I think all of that comes together. Uh, the cowardice, uh, the, uh, the connection to Dudley except competent, uh, and the arrogance over things that he has no right to be arrogant about um, and then you combine things like just his sadistic glee in other people's misfortune <laughs> yeah. and he's pretty much everything anybody has ever hated yeah yeah well we learned that Gryffindor and Slytherin are both teaming up at least the first years uh, to learn how to fly together and of course, the Gryffindors do not like this one single bit. Harry, especially Harry, Ron, and Hermione, I guess. One of the details that I I loved here, and it's easy to read over, but I think it's remarkably telling, uh, is when Neville is described. Neville had never been on a broomstick in his life because his grandmother had never let him near one. 
Privately, Harry felt she'd had good reason, because Neville managed to have an extraordinary number of accidents, even with both feet on the ground. And as soon as I read that, my mind went to a place that it sounds like Emerson, who, who wrote in, uh, did. I asked, what if Neville had flown? What if Gran had let him get off the ground rather than protecting him? I'm curious um, to hear your thoughts. Would Neville be the same person if he'd grown up in a family that allowed him to take a risk? And perhaps that can lead us into thinking about uh, Emerson's question. What is Rowling doing by creating a wizarding world for children that is so risk-saturated? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one thing that just occurred to me is we know the way that Neville found out that he was a wizard was he fell off like a balcony, right? And he bounced. He was thrown. Wasn't he got it? Yeah. almost like dangled yeah, or something dangled and, and dropped. dropped. Yes. Like yeah. like blanket. Um, anyway, so he he but he bounced, and that's how he figured out that he was a wizard. And Gran was so happy she cried. Right, and she cried. And I think it's still too. So soon. I'm wondering if um, if that would have happened sooner if they'd let him do more dangerous things. If they'd let him, you know, here, try out the broomstick, you know, just, I'll, I'll watch you and don't go too high. If he'd fallen off and bounced, then we might have known earlier that he was a wizard. Hmm. But, I mean, I guess you never really know what the telltale sign is going to be, so... Well, or perhaps he stays on his broom. Right. And, he, and he's a and, good flyer. Yeah. <laughs> but he's not been given that chance. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how much of it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy mm -hmm. um, where, in this case, uh, Neville's caretakers um, feel the need to protect him from harm and, in so doing, create someone who is remarkably susceptible to harm. Yeah. Whereas his foil, Harry constantly does risky things that are like stupid you know you see him later jump yeah. on the back of a troll and you're like harry why but and it had, turns out fine yeah had the opposite kind of childhood right completely unprotected right and no yet, one cares what happens to the you. picture of resilience yes and while this is a fictional account you know Rowling could have written these characters however she wanted to mm -hmm. i think uh we can agree that there is a dose of truth um, it may not be a hard and fast rule right. um, that works out every time, but there there is a dose of truth here in these dynamics that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I feel the need to talk a little bit about Gran here, too, because part of me is sitting here thinking, you know, her, her son was tortured by Voldemort, mm -hmm. and so, of course, she, you know, this, her, her grandson, she loves him, she wants to protect him, but then she's constantly putting him down and saying things like, you know, you should be more like your father or like, you know, just doubting him and kind of chastising him in front of people. I mean, several times when we meet her, she's saying negative things towards him and kind of putting him down. And you have to wonder if that's not some sort of defense mechanism that she's created that kind of keeps him safe. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. Well, like Trevor said, I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that uh, he's always, he's talked down to, and therefore he does not believe in himself. He doesn't believe that he can mm -hmm. do these things, and he's very, very nervous about doing them. Yeah. And flying is just one of those things. I think it was interesting uh, in the flying class, uh, the Harmonic Granger, mm -hmm. uh, in the way that 
Hermione, now, she, she is a girl that knows practically everything about the wizarding world. I guess more than most wizards do, even though she wasn't brought up in the wizarding world herself. But flying is one thing that you cannot learn from a book. Uh, I think Rowling points that out. And that this is something more like an art, or this is something more like it's an instinct, it's a feeling. Uh, and I, I thought that this was this was something really interesting just because obviously Harry's very good at it and uh, it helps him actually, I think, fit into the wizarding world. Yeah. Or at least have more confidence in himself that he's he's a wizard. Right. Now, this actually gets reminds me of one of the big reasons, going back to our discussion about um, about the contrast between Harry and Malfoy and why we hate Malfoy but why we love Harry and like they're they're both in a sense like really different from us right they're both amazing at certain things and with Harry like the inequality between us and him when he's this amazingly talented flyer because obviously none of us have any flying talent um, <laughs> so far as we know yeah. <laughs> um, we're impressed, we would love to imitate, but we have no reason to resent. Whether it's in like natural talent or worked for talent, like we don't resent Harry for his ability. Um, and there's no reason for that. Whereas like when you see the way Malfoy is just lording over his unearned wealth, this position that he had no play, no no role in creating, um, you can resent him for using his power in this way and, and lording it over others. Well, I think that's part of the part of the reason you don't like one and you admire the other. Just well, like how nobody's like, you know, envious of I don't know, resentful of Bob Dylan or resentful of Einstein. Like nobody's like, they got talent, you know. Like you don't resent them for having talent, okay. but you'd resent, I don't know, some multi-millionaire who just got all his money from his parents and then used that money in in terrible ways you know to boost his own self-esteem mm -hmm. well i think i mean malfoy again he's we get him he's talking about uh how good he is at flying you know he's very mm -hmm. boastful about his stories but we even see that flying is a very big deal to especially uh, the boys, the first years. I mean, they are talking about it. Like I, I'm trying to compare it to something. Well, um, it's the only sport. Yeah, so. I mean, obviously Quidditch. You know, I mean, <laughs> if you're gonna be an athlete, you, you have know, to be a Quidditch player. Yeah, we never grew up, or at least I didn't grow up in, in I didn't grow up in England. You know, and so I don't know how much of a, a hold soccer, or excuse me, football for those international fans have. Uh, on the the culture, you know, so I, I don't know how big of a grip it has, but I, you know, can assume that you know football is life for a lot of people over there, um, and so in the same way, I guess Quidditch is is that sport, and they love talking about it, they love bragging about mm -hmm. it. One of the things that I'm interested in um, is the mechanics. A flying. Hmm. Uh, Madam Hooch says, keep your broom steady, rise a few feet, and then come straight back down, 
by leaning forward slightly. I was thinking, well, I would think leaning forward slightly would accelerate you in a particular direction. Mm -hmm. And that got me thinking, like, what are, like, the bodily mechanics of making a a broom fly? I I noticed, uh, even later on in this chapter, when Rowling is describing Harry's sensations um, of flying, she simply says, Harry knew somehow what to do. Right. She never gives us the details of what his body was going through. That's one of the parts of the wizarding world that I've I just found myself growing uh, increasingly curious about. How exactly does a broom respond to physical stimuli or is it also responding to thoughts? Is there a kind of connection between broom and wizard the way there is between wand and wizard? I think it has to be that because yeah. it just does not make sense right. otherwise. There's no rudder, right? Like there's nothing that does steering. So right. otherwise, it'd have to be sort of lean based, well, yeah. sort of it, like how a Segway like, works or something like that. At least like that. in the movies, it's lean based with turning. Well, but then he also in the movies he stands on his broom at one he point, does. right? To to stand and then lean and leap to get the snitch. I mean, that seemed a little indulgent. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was that really necessary? <laughs> Well, I mean, you got to put on a show. Yeah. It's very exciting. It's Quidditch. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But yeah, I, I I agree. I think it's it's one of those things that's just intuitive, and I I think the more you explain it, the less it becomes yeah. magical. <laughs> so we just have to take it for granted. You can fly on a broomstick; it works fine. Now there are things analogous, I think, in life where uh, you're body knows how to do we were talking about this before with wand motions uh that there is a bodily knowledge that sort of bypasses the brain Mm -hmm. and you know what to do and you are doing something and it is a type of knowledge but you couldn't necessarily put it into words or the moment that you actually started thinking about it you would forget what happened because it's not that kind of knowledge and so there are things analogous but apart from that i just I'm, I'm, I'm with Alex here. There are limited options about what you can do with a broom to make it accelerate, decelerate, rise. Like, you can, you have the potential, like a hummingbird, to go in any possible direction and to also accelerate and decelerate. And I'm just not sure, like, how a broom would know. Yeah. Well, we also um, get introduced to another piece of magical equipment called a Remembral, which is a weird little gadget that does not seem to me like it would be super useful. Yeah. Because right? <laughs> all it tells agree. you is that you forgot a thing, but it doesn't tell you what or where or how or anything like that. And so for somebody like Neville, who's probably forgotten ten things today, it's not very helpful. Also, you need to forget things. Like, there's some things that are so unimportant that you don't need to be remembered. How does the rem- remember-all oh. know what are the things that you should be remembering at that time as opposed to other things? I mean, does it un- have an understanding of your schedule and an understanding of your priorities in life and, you know, everything that you're going for and motivating you right now so that you can it can then say, oh, yes, there's a thing that you have forgotten that you need to remember right now. Right. And it, we don't... Do you guys remember remember seeing or remember all again in the canon? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I don't either. So I'm pretty sure she just invented it 
so that she could have a snitch-shaped thing for the next scene. Because yep. mm. we never see it again. Is, well, it, is, is it among the instruments that are seen in the Defense Against the Dark Arts uh, classroom later? Like, well, it's similar to the thing Moody has that's that what says I was when there's a dark wizard coming, but again, like remember, it doesn't tell you who or what. You just right. know that if you can see the whites of their eyes, it's right. bad. Well, yeah, the full glass. It's, again, I feel like that's more useful, though. That's like enemies are coming. But still, toes. if it's magic, can't they give you a little more information? Like, yeah. this is like dollar you store magic. Some, uh, yeah, <laughs> they, got this at, they got this at the Dollar General at Diagon Alley, so it's <laughs> limited usefulness. Man, Dollar Generals are everywhere these days. They're not good deals either. No. Sorry if any of our listeners <laughs> own a Dollar General. <laughs> <laughs> the dollar store is way cheaper. <laughs> So. <laughs> so anyway, with the Remember All, we have this uh, confrontation during the uh, lesson after Neville just breaks his wrist <laughs> from having gone just... Oh, uh, well, he went, like, up 20 feet, and then he falls that's um, a heck on of the broom. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty bad. And only broke his wrist. Yeah, so it could have been a lot worse, which I, I'm a little bit baffled that the only... Um, the only way Madame Hooch has to combat this is to say, come back, boy. <laughs> that she can't, yeah. that she has no control over any of the brooms. They could all fly away and leave Hogwarts, and she could do nothing about it. This is additionally... It's, it's not like Driver's Ed, yeah, where you exactly. have your own brake paddle. Exactly. <sighs> additionally, I thought, like, how strange is it that we hear this, and then very soon we will hear about a spell that helps things hover in the air when you need them to, instead of just come crashing down. Uh-huh. And, like, we learn about it, and, like, right before, wouldn't it have been great if Hooch had remembered this as right. she saw her student <laughs> falling or, or through the, the air? Or the spell oh, that then... Dumbledore uses later in a Quidditch yeah. match when Harry's hurtling mm-hmm. out of the air. Yeah. Like, we know there are things that can stop this, and so it's just a little bit disconcerting that the what? adult in charge lets her wrist get broken. What else do you do, Madam Right. Hooch? So the, the interesting <laughs> thing, too, that's funny that you all say that, because, like, when they describe Madam Hooch, they say that she has eyes like a hawk. Which is so ironic because she does not. She doesn't see half the fouls that yeah. happen on Harry during teacher Quidditch yeah. matches. She's she a really bad ref. <laughs> any clue that Neville's falling thirty feet from his broom? So she doesn't really have eyes like hawk. Yeah, and then she and look then, like a hawk. The yeah, fall, right? A the fall movies, from that do. high would take a good amount of time. Like we're right. not talking like quick draw magic here. Like you're watching this situation unfold. Right. Neville is like. Yelling out. Does of she not have a broom? Is she not going to catch him? I mean, just a one, I mean, first years Very are learning Wingardium Leviosa on well, in within months of right. entering Hogwarts. I mean, I know it's you a are a professor. How this is problem. That's what I'm I think it's a problem. I will say that because <laughs> of this, do, it gets to lead into like one of my favorite <laughs> scenes in this whole book. I love the scene of the drama of Harry catching it and yeah, then the suspense of McGonagall coming and is he in trouble and like I so I, I love what it does as a plot device although I admit it's kind of a yeah shot as a plot teacher device. I'm just like how are you still employed you let him fall from 20 feet you did nothing to stop it and then you left your whole class to take him to the hospital wing you can't do that they've all got broomsticks they're she gone. Had, they she all collected left. the broomsticks before right. she Or went. delegated no. someone no else to take them. Yeah, no anybody who has ever been a teacher. Or sent an owl to the hospital wing. Anybody who's ever been a teacher 
read that line of Madam Hooch leaving the kids and was like, yeah. oh, now that is a bad move. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I bring these things up all the time, but at the same, but like, where is the jurisprudence here? I mean, where, why is there not a release form? You yeah. know, why, because, why are there regulations? And I, really, I really think this is why kids get hurt so often because it's so easy to just take them to the hospital wing and Madam Hooch can fix a broken bone like that. Yeah. If it was harder to heal, I think there would be more safety measures in place at Hogwarts. Possibly. Because they're just like, oh, oh, I know that hurts, but it won't in ten minutes. But what if he had broken his neck instead of his arm? Right. That's... He can just use a time turner. Oh, uh, yeah, we're going to time turner up in there. <laughs> those, are, those are government issues. <laughs> you're right, you're right. But I, I do... Not like there's a strong distinction between the private and the, and the government sphere in this... Yeah, whole society. Mm-hmm. Well, I do love. You, I mean, like you were saying, the Sylvia. Scene. I love the scene. Uh, I do think that this is another pivotal scene for Harry to make a decision. You know, mm-hmm. he, I mean, he could let this go, uh, but he decides to step up, and you see further character development here. Mm-hmm. That he makes a decision that Neville is part of my tribe. You know, Neville. Uh, does not deserve to have his things taken by Draco, and he goes after Draco. I love, um, we start to kind of get a sense as Malfoy on his own when he doesn't have his goons, because Harry points that out, you know, he keep, Harry keeps saying, give it here, give me the remember all, and Malfoy says, oh yeah, come and get it. And then Harry's like, well, you don't have Crab and Goyle up here, so I will come and get it. And Malfoy's like, oh, never mind. And he throws it. Because <laughs> yeah. I cannot take you one-on-one, and I'm aware of that. But thankfully, Harry is an amazing catch, and so he swoops down and catches the Remember All before it breaks, and McGonagall sees him. Mm. This is one of the many moments that Harry thinks he's about to get expelled, but then something good happens. Well, he's even, it's so sad, you know, to me to watch him calculate in his mind that, well, maybe I can go work for Hagrid, you know, <laughs> and, and be his assistant, you know, but and then he's thinking about, oh, but Ron and Hermione are going to grow up and, and become real wizards, and I'm just going to be carrying Hagrid's bag, you know? And so, like, it is a sad scene to, to think about. I mean, just just what's going on in his stomach right there, just the knots and the twists and turns. It's also one of a handful of scenes in the books, though, where McGonagall surprises us. Mm-hmm. Yes. She's, she's not all the way the type of professor that we think her to be. Like, she has a heart, she has compassion, uh, she has a sense of humor, and she has a competitive streak. Yeah. <laughs> and if this little whippersnapper is going to help us take, you know, the, the Quidditch cup from Slytherin, so be it. Professor Flitwick, can I see Oliver Wood? <laughs> let, let me talk to him. We learn that not only are the students obsessed with Quidditch, but the professors are as well. The adult wizarding world is as well. Mm-hmm. Did anybody else think that this was, however, just sort of another example of how athletic kids in society tend to get special treatment? Mm -hmm. That, like, regardless (laughs) of, like, the fact that they may not be nearly the quality of student, if you can catch a ball, 
A quaffle. A snitch. Or a snitch. Or a snitch. As the case may be. Like, suddenly, all sorts of doors are open yep. to you. You can break rules. You can do all sorts of things that other people can't do. And then suddenly it's like, oh, well, it's okay this time. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Sort of like in Goblet of Fire, how Harry doesn't have to take any of your exams because, mm. oh, you're a champion. You <laughs> competed, so no end of your exams. Like, that's pretty cool. Although he did almost die. Yeah. No, that's true. <laughs> that's well, true. not different from the condition of many athletes that compete in you know, college sports Football. today. Mm-hmm. I mean, serious brain injuries yeah. and all sorts of things like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. I do. I think I do think that Harry gets piled on top of that some chosen one privileges as well. Yeah. So he's got extra stuff. No, but that's a good point, Alex. I did not think about that, but that's totally fair. About what athletes and society. What I think is fascinating, though, is that normally and. Any sports fans out there will immediately know of a half dozen or more examples of exactly what Alex is talking about, of like actual criminal behavior being excused um, for the sake of athletes being uh, allowed to continue staying enrolled at an institution and competing on the field or on the court. Um, what I think is fascinating about what Rowling does is she turns the table. Because when we hear stories about you know, a football player not being charged with a heinous crime and then going out and scoring a touchdown the next Saturday, uh, our stomachs turn. We are rightly enraged. But when Harry receives special treatment, when it's Gryffindor that's going to be benefiting, we're a whole lot quicker to applaud you know, this fortunate turn of events. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I agree that there is a parallel there. There, I think it's fascinating that Rowling writes the story in such a way that we want to excuse any malfeasance on Harry's part, um, in part because we are invested in the success of Harry and Gryffindor uh, as much as Professor McGonagall is, as much as uh, a university athletic director is invested in his football program staying on top well not only that but we do know that harry was doing this to the benefit of a friend you know i mean he was breaking the rules for sure uh but he was doing this to stand up for neville who was not certainly certainly and that's a good point but not always yeah that won't (laughs) always be the case (laughs) sometimes harry is just Just not not doing the right thing yeah. And and still, the, whether it's the chosen one or the athletic prowess or whatever, there is a certain amount of leeway that yeah. he's afforded that others aren't. And we do see um, McGonagall tells Harry that Harry's father was an excellent Quidditch mm-hmm. player as well. So this becomes something that he can kind of tie back to his family that he doesn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. And so I think... That's one of the big reasons why Harry throws himself into Quidditch the way he does. You know, one, because it's something intuitive that he's good at. It's easier for him than a lot of the other magic that he has to do. And also because it makes him feel like he's connected with his father. Yeah. But we find out that Harry's going to be the first, uh, first, first year to be on a house team in over a century. Mm-hmm. 
and, which is a, a big deal. And this is the chosen one, of course, so there's that. But he proved himself before he was he given this. He did. And I do think that it's only fair for McGonagall for us to say, like, at the end, she does follow it up with, like, I want to hear that you're training hard, or I might just change my mind about your punishment. So mm -hmm. she, she doesn't punish him, but she tells him, like, she gives him sort of a, I mean, even later he reflects, like, I don't know if I should break another rule today because I just barely scraped by. So she did give it with enough force that he believed her, yep. which I appreciate about McGonagall. Yeah, but the other rule that he thinks about breaking now is he gets into another confrontation with Draco, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they get into what's called a wizarding duel, uh, uh, and or at least the the throwdown. Yeah, yeah, the throwdown of a wizard. The gauntlet yes. throw. Oh yeah, of a possible wizard duel at the midnight. The has been thrown in the ring. Yes, midnight in the trophy room. And this is another thing. I mean. I think is a little archaic, you know, uh, I mean, duels in our society have been gone for a very long time, part of an honor-based society where, you know, you can almost have a duel. I know they're pretty popular now because of the, uh, the Broadway Hamilton. musical Hamilton, you know, is out there, and so the duel is kind of back in fashion, not in real, not real. I was reality. about to say, is the duel really it's, back it's in not, fashion? It's not back in fashion, no, but we now know <laughs> at least some more of the rules of the duel. Um, and so with that, we know that, again, it is an honor-based society where you know, if you say the wrong thing, you offend my honor, then this is what a duel is for. Mm -hmm. um, and I, this is another time where I just see Draco Malfoy, if this actually was a duel, that it was, you know, this is an honor-based competition. And not, I mean, where wizards actually die, he chooses almost the lowest way out that I can think of, the, one of the most dishonorable weighs out by not even showing up to the duel, which shows something about, I guess, your character, but then snitching and mm -hmm. trying to get Harry in trouble, saying that he's going to be here at this time out of bed. I, again, this is another reason why I think we hate, we hate Draco. Him. Yeah, he set a trap. He set basically. a trap. But I love, Hermione is just my favorite. I just yeah. picture her in, like, yes. curlers in a bathroom this whole time. She's so, <laughs> like, the mom of the group. As soon as she overhears it, she said, I couldn't help overhearing what you and Malfoy were saying. And Ron's like, I bet you could. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, you mustn't go wandering around the school at night. Think of the points you'll lose, Gryffindor, if you're caught. And you're bound to be. It's really very selfish of you. And it really is. Yeah. You know, I mean, Harry's not thinking about mm -hmm. other people losing out because of this. He's just like, I mean, I have to prove to Malfoy that I can take him on, even though I've never, ever done anything like this. And I only know, like, two spells because of the first year. I'm going to do this anyway and yeah. get other people in trouble. And so it's... Yeah, this is about pride, not yeah. about defending a friend like the first time he stood up to Malfoy. This is just pride. I love that Ron says, oh, it's no big deal. The most you're going to do is send sparks at each other. Right. <laughs> like, that's like, all you can do. Yeah. He sort of exposes the, the silliness of, mm -hmm. of what you know, Malfoy has proposed. Yeah, it really is just posturing because they have no actual skills at this point to use. Mm -hmm. So then they actually go to sneak out for the duel, and Hermione follows them and gets locked out of the 
of Gryffindor Tower, so now she's in on it, whether she wants to be or not. But they'd also find someone who is also locked out. And again, it's poor <laughs> Neville. <laughs> I love this, this whole dynamic between the four of them because I feel like it really highlights each of their characters. Like, Harry takes on that leading role and he, you know, he says what they're going to do and and he's got this thirst to prove himself. It's like who he is. He's got to go because he's got to prove himself. Mm-hmm. And then, like, Ron, who's ever overshadowed and has all these older brothers, kind of like Trevor said, he's sort of like, the most you're going to be able to do is, you know, send sparks at one another and, you know, throw your wand away and punch him on the nose. He's got this, like, sidekick sort of yeah. thing. I'll be your second. Right. Yeah. And then Hermione, I picture her exactly the way you said, <laughs> but she's this, like, busybody rule follower. Mm-hmm. And then poor Neville... Locked outside in the most pitiful thing you can imagine, like sniffling because the bloody baron has been by, terrified. And so it's like the four of them, before they really come into their character, before they're molded by the other four. And I just, I love that we see like the essence of who they are mm-hmm. when they're so young, before they've really been shaped and molded by, by everyone else. Yeah, I agree. This is, uh, we're about halfway, maybe even more than halfway through the book, but this is a chapter where they are starting to the concrete starting to dry I think as their friendships and who they are and who they're going to be to one another um, this chapter and especially the next chapter mm-hmm. uh, they're starting to really concrete themselves into who they're going to be yeah so Malfoy doesn't show up to the duel mm. and then Filch shows up so we're running from Filch and then Peeves shows up and we're running from Peeves and they run and they run and they don't stop um, until they find a door to hide behind. Well, they find a door that is locked yes. first, and they think Ron throws up his hands and is like, "Oh, we're over. This is done. We're done for." <laughs> you know. And then I think Hermione shows that she is definitely a witch to have in a pinch. Um, I mean, this is one of the first times that she shows herself that this is to be true, but it will not be the last, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like quintessential Hermione where she is going to solve everyone's problem by a simple spell. Yeah. Right. Of course, it's also quintessential Hogwarts in that <laughs> a first year knows how to get through this locked door that is hiding this treacherously dangerous yeah. creature. Yeah. Um, my, and it is surprising the first time through you're gripped you're you're excited you're exhilarated because oh a a character has come sort of uh, out of the shadows and taken on this heroic role by uh, using a spell that we as readers didn't even know existed Mm -hmm. but you know by the time you've read all seven books many times through alohomora is like like that's the first thing anyone ever would have thought of. Like, <laughs> yeah. Dumbledore, people who are, you know, hiding uh, this three-headed dog and the thing that it's protecting. Is that is that really the best we can do? Like, Yeah. So all you did was lock a door and tell students not to go there. <laughs> <laughs> this is like leaving them along with the, alone with the broomsticks all over. Right. Uh-huh. right. Yeah, but, and saying, don't you dare go off the Yeah, right. Like, oh, don't go over Really? There. Like, how much do you think that's yeah. going to solve? So we meet Fluffy for the first time, and then we run away in terror. <laughs> but Hermione is the only one level-headed enough to realize that Fluffy is standing on a trap door. 
guarding something. And Harry immediately puts it together that it's probably that package that got taken from the vault when he was with Hagrid. So he's super sleuthing right off the bat. And that brings us to the end of chapter nine. Well, maybe this would be a, a good chance to revisit Emerson's question about the dangers of Hogwarts and what Rowling is trying to communicate, if anything. Uh, is, is Hogwarts dangerous just because it's a more interesting environment? Or is there a commentary about what children um, need in order to flourish and grow and discover the strength um, that is latent and just waiting to be utilized. Hmm. Well, it certainly is true that we have a fairly protective approach in the West mm-hmm. dealing with kids. Um, I'm partway through this book called The World Until Yesterday by Jared Diamond, which is all looking at the way different cultures deal with different problems. And I was shocked to learn about how many cultures have what I would consider an outrageously lackadaisical attitude raising kids. I mean, they will have kids playing with swords and arrow, like weapons from the, from two, three, I mean, the toddlers toddling around That's pretty with, <laughs> with axes uh, <laughs> and open fire pits. And like a lot of the adults, they do surveys have terrible scars and burns and stabbings, accidental when they were kids. And they learn fairly quickly that, you know, if you shouldn't play around with fire because it can burn you. But it's usually after they've gotten yeah. pretty, burned. pretty burned, mm-hmm. at least once or twice. Um, and so, I mean, I, I don't know where this falls because, on the one hand, like obviously they're not they're not giving babies, you know, they're not putting babies in this environment. But at the same time, twelve year olds, fourteen year olds, yeah. with three headed. Cerberi? Is that the, is that the right term? Multiple I Cerberuses? The, There's only the one that we know of. Well, okay. And similar dangers. <laughs> um, yeah, obviously they encounter... Uh, we talked about it last episode. You know, there was all these dangers in Hogwarts. And this is, I mean, a, a big one right here is that there is the big three-headed dog and just protected by the... Sorry. Just protected by the Alohomora spell. I mean, that's that's it. And so you, you think that, you know, what are the teachers thinking? What's Dumbledore thinking? Um, and you do see that nobody dies. I mean, they're in all these dangerous situations, but nobody really dies. You can make an argument, I guess, about Cedric Diggory and Book 4, but nobody really dies in Hogwarts. And I don't know if that owes to the magic of the school. Um, maybe they, maybe Hogwarts puts, you know, children in situations that, you know, bring them to their breaking point, but makes them stronger. I, I don't know, but you don't see the children dying. You see them encountering these very difficult and very dangerous situations and making it out sometimes just by the skin of their teeth. If I, if I think Rowling was intentionally trying to point us to how our society could use a little more, um, I hate to say danger for our children, but a little more exposure maybe to mm-hmm. things that could harm them, 
because um, we are so prone to sort of helicopter parent. Um, but I think it's a good, I mean, I think it's a good point. But I'm, there are different dangers, I guess, in our society, like bullying and like social media, things like that, that maybe these guys aren't quite as exposed to that I think we can make an argument pose sort of similar kind of harmful exposure to our our kids that you know Harry doesn't really have to deal with. There's certainly an element of like bullying, especially where Neville is, but there there are dangers. But I, I, one thing I thought about was in one of the later books, I can't remember if it's book two or book six, when there are happenings at Hogwarts that are putting kids in danger. Um, Hagrid says something like, it's always been risky to send your kid to Hogwarts. Putting all those underage wizards together, it's going to be dangerous. So it's it's something that's expected, but there's control. And what you said, Vera, about Madame Pomfrey being able to mend bones and all of these things quickly, um, I think there's a level of trust that parents have with the teachers that they're able to um, sort of control some of those things. They're antidotes for poisons, and you can heal bones and all sorts of things that might go wrong. Um, but there there aren't any of those things in our society that there are at Hogwarts. Like, you can't really protect your children from bullying and cyberbullying and all of these things. Um, so I'm... Cars. You, I can't, almost, you can't protect your kid walking down the right. street from getting hit by some driver. Right. I mean, I almost feel like... If I were to choose, I would send my kid to Hogwarts. I mean, I would definitely send my kid to Hogwarts because that'd be <laughs> awesome. But as far as, like, danger goes, I mean, there are elements that we're faced with. Our kids, muggle children, are faced with that Hogwarts, witches and wizards, aren't faced with and vice versa. Yeah. I also think a lot of it is just down to genre. You know, it's mm -hmm. an adventure. It's a fantasy adventure. So if there's no danger, it's not an adventure. Things have to go wrong and be scary mm -hmm. so that you can overcome them. And, you know, the fantasy part of that comes in and the children's aspect of it comes in where not many people die. Everybody's mostly okay. Um, whereas if realistically we were faced with all these dangers, it would be a lot more casualties probably. <laughs> but, you know, that's not the that's not the genre that we're in. Mm -hmm, yeah. So... Yeah. So, I, I do think a big part of it is um, creating a world different enough from ours that there can be something jaw-dropping mm -hmm. every couple of chapters. Detention in the Forbidden Forest? <laughs> What's that? What's that about? Like, an actual chamber of secrets with what lurking inside? Like, yeah. there's... So I think there are literary reasons. Um, but... I, I, I think I would agree that Rowling ends up showing us the benefits that come from allowing children to push themselves mm -hmm. and, sort, and discover the capacities that they actually have, the capacities that they have the power to grow into. And I think our discussion about Neville not really having that opportunity is sort of the foil of that. Um, so both of those together, I think, are helpful ways for me to at least come come to grips with what's going on mm -hmm. in the Hogwarts world. Yeah. Well, dear listener, if you have thoughts that you'd like to share or another question that you hope will spur on conversation for the Harry Potter Book Club, please reach out to us at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And... Next time, we are going to be reading Chapter 10, Halloween, 
So make sure you follow along in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, read that chapter ahead of time, and get back with us the next time the Harry Potter Book Club comes around the table. Bye. 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 Bye.